0: Good morning, Mercy House. My name is Grace. I am a graduate student at UMass. Um, Today's reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Thank you, God, for your presence with us. I pray that you would open our ears. Would you unite our hearts to fear your name? Would you incline our hearts to Jesus, not towards selfish ambition or pride, but towards humility? And would you satisfy us this morning with your love? Would you unite us as a congregation underneath the authority of your word and of your spirit? Thank you, Father, for the preparation that Patrick put into today's sermon. I pray that you would give him clarity of thought. Thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells in him um, and that you have been teaching him and guiding him towards you. I pray that... Um, we would be sensitive um, to your Holy Spirit to this morning, and would we celebrate, God, thank you for the joy, the life, the promise, the truth that is in your word that we just read. Pray that we would not um, fail to grasp it, God, but that we would grab onto it with both hands and take it to heart and believe it. Give us the faith. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
1: Uh, welcome. I'm Patrick Grafton-Cardwell. I'm an elder here at Mercy House and a grad student at UMass, although hopefully not for long. I've got a dissertation defense in a month, so you can pray for me. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me preach today, whoever made that choice. Robert's not here, so it's, uh, that, you know, that's probably the reason. But I'm excited to be up here. This is a really fun passage, and it's been a really fun, uh, fun series, really deep. So we're talking about um, sanctification today. That's really what we're getting into. And, and what I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about is setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. So that's going to be the focus. But where Paul starts off is he says there's therefore... No condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, you know, I think a lot of us know this. Whenever you see therefore in Scripture, you need to think about, okay, there's a conclusion being reached here. What, why did he say therefore? What's, what's this following from? So I want to first take a step back and remember where did we just come from? Uh, and specifically, we're going to look really quickly at chapters 6 and 7 and then launch into what we're talking about today. So Paul is, I think, responding to the sort of theology of sanctification that he started to lay out in chapters 6 and 7. In chapter 6, really quickly, uh, just in 6 verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him, that is with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he has more to say there. But the basic idea here is that having been justified and being united with Christ in his death, we're going to be united with him in his life. And this is going to change who we are here and now. That we are no longer slaves to sin, that was who we were before, but we are slaves to righteousness. Now the way Robert kind of preached about this was it's like in chapter 6, it's like he's giving the locker room speech before the game, right? Like Robert talked about his past as a high school football player. I do not have that past. I, I was never an athlete. But, uh, you know, he talked about your identity, right? And you're, when you're in the locker room and the coach is telling you before the game, you know, he's talking about your mascot, maybe it's the Wildcats. He's saying, you know, you're Wildcats. That's who you are. And you so go out and play like Wildcats. And it feels really like a big pump up. And then chapter 7 comes and you remember, oh, it's not so easy, right? Like in the football game you go out and the field is hot and there's a, an opponent in front of you and you find it's, it's pretty hard to be a wildcat. Like someone's there ready to hit you and it takes some work. And so in chapter 7, Paul is laying out what is the opponent before us. So in seven twenty-one through 24, he says, I find it to be a law." that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So this is the, the struggle that we encounter even as Christians who've been justified and, and have this identity of being united with Christ in his death and in his life, that there's this sin still dwelling in our members that's struggling against us, that's trying to head us off whenever we're delighting in the law of God. So that shows us our opponent. You know, being a wildcat, it's not so easy. So here's where we are. I think Paul wants to remind us that even despite that struggle, we are not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so where is that hope coming from? I mean, this you know, body of death language sounds pretty drastic, right? <laughs> like, um, well, I, I think actually it could be helpful to take a step looking backwards first and to show that Paul has actually already told us where this hope comes from. And it lines up with what he says here in chapter 8. So let's look back really quickly at Romans 5. So this is back when Paul was still talking about our status as justified believers. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we spent a lot of time walking through this uh, in the beginning of the semester. If you weren't here for some of those sermons, I, I would totally recommend that you go back and, and listen to some of those or, or talk to me or somebody else who was here for those. But um, yeah, he says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there are two big ideas, I think, to hold on to from this passage about hope that we're going to also see in the passage that we read today. One is that hope comes through suffering with endurance. He says right, that uh, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. So if you want hope, actually, part of the way to get it is to suffer. And we'll think a little bit. I'm actually going to put off talking about that until... The end, but that's something I want to mark right now. The other thing is that hope makes sense because we have the spirit. Sometimes you might think hopes is a foolish thing, right? That, um, you know, hope doesn't have a basis, or that maybe the worry for, for people who have hope is that it's it has no foundation. That, yeah, you can have hope, but how do you know that your hope is going to be fulfilled? Well, he says right here. Hope does not put us to, sh- to shame. That is, hope, we can, we can be sure that our hope will be fulfilled because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what is the assurance of our hope? It's the Spirit that has been given to us. So that's what I want to spend some time thinking about first. This idea that hope makes sense or hope uh, will not put us to shame because we have the Spirit. So I think in, this, in the beginning of this passage in chapter 8, uh, Paul's laying out a vision of what it looks like for someone to live a hopeful life because they have the Spirit. And going back to that locker room kind of analogy, someone who's you know a football player, they've, they got the pregame speech, they're a wildcat, then they went out and they got beat up in the first half. We can imagine now the halftime speech right like you go back into the locker room and paul's reminding them yeah there's an opponent and that opponent is hard but here's how to go out and actually go beat that opponent here's the tool that you have on your side uh i don't know what this what the analogy of the holy spirit is in football i I actually can i'm running a little bit short there but we have we have a tool to beat our opponent right it's the holy spirit So even though the opponent is tough, here's Paul saying, here's the game plan for the second half. It's walking in the Spirit. So let's read that uh, uh, verses 2 through 4 right here. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He beat your opponent in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so Paul has already talked a lot about how we had the law really as a teacher to show us our sin and to show us what righteousness was and to show us, you know, the big gap between those things. But we don't need that anymore, he's saying right here. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. It couldn't save us. And it couldn't, you know, it couldn't, uh, what does he say, Um, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. It could show us what it was, but it couldn't fulfill that in us. But those of us who have accepted God's gift of grace through faith stand before God righteous now. We stand before God having had accomplished in us what the law couldn't do in us, right? Um, so I've been leading one of these disciple maker tracks that Alden just talked about earlier. Um, the one I've been leading is called Classics of Church History, which is think not as exciting sounding a name as maybe we could have come up with, but um, it is a really exciting group. We get to read old books uh, that were written by Christians centuries ago who were developing early church theology and really struggling with and uh, grappling with, you know, the meaning of what the apostles taught and what it meant to really follow Christ when they were being persecuted, when they were suffering and trying to find hope in that. One person that we just read in the last few weeks was a a guy named Irenaeus of Lyons. He was a second century Greek bishop. And he actually had something to say about exactly this transformation in our relationship with the law. So I thought it'd be worthwhile to just read what Irenaeus said um, because it's just so apropos. So he says, therefore, we do not need the law as a pedagogue, that is, as a teacher. Behold, we speak with the Father and stand before him, becoming as children in evil and becoming strong in all righteousness and integrity. For no more shall the law say, you shall not commit adultery to him who, doesn't even come, or who does not even come desire for another man's wife, nor you shall not kill to him who has removed all anger and enmity from himself, nor you shall not... Covet your neighbor's field or his his ox or his ass to those who make no care at all of earthly things, but lay up heavenly fruit. And neither an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to him who counts no man an enemy, but all as his neighbor. And for this reason cannot even stretch out his hand in vengeance. Nor will it exact tithes from him who dedicates all his possessions to God and abandons mother and father and all kinsmen and then follows the word of God. And neither will he be commanded to leave one day of rest idle who keeps the Sabbath constantly, that is, celebrating the service of God in the temple of God, which is man's body, and at all times, working righteousness. So here, Irenaeus, I think, is giving us a vision of what walking in the Spirit looks like. Paul says um, that... God has made it that, we ha- that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, right? And I think Irenaeus is saying, yeah, that's exactly what, this, what, what that looks like right here. That if you wanted to walk according, or if, if you wanted to try and fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in the way the law talks about, you would just have to follow the rules. Do what the rules say. But in the way that, or once you've been transformed by the Spirit, once you have been justified by Christ and you've been given the Spirit, you don't even need the law anymore. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you, and you don't even need the rules anymore because Christ is transforming you from the inside out. So one interesting thing, though, one thing that I think we should focus on is that Paul says to experience this kind of transformation where you don't need the law anymore, you have to walk according to the Spirit. So how exactly do we do that? How do we get to that place where we're walking according to the Spirit? Let's look a little bit further in what Paul says in verses 5 through 8. He says, "...for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it seems like he's saying, if you want to walk according to the spirit, in that way that Irenaeus is talking about, where You know, you can't even hurt someone because no enmity, you you don't even have any enmity or hate in your heart anymore. If you want to get to that point of walking according to the Spirit, you have to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Okay, well now we have a new question, right? What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? And that's something I want to spend a little bit more time talking about today, kind of camp out here. So... At the risk of getting overly academic, I want to talk about the actual word that Paul uses right there when he says setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, the Greek word. So Paul, the word Paul uses to say this is this Greek word phroneo. So that's the verb. And this word phroneo is a way of talking about something with the aim both of understanding but also of acting, both of understanding it and also of acting. So we might translate this as instead as saying something like this. Those who live according to the spirit, mind the spirit. Similar to something like, you know, if you've ever been to London and you went on the underground, they say, what, what's the recording that they always have on there? Mind the gap, Right. Like, the, the idea there, right, is, like, be aware of the gap. Know what the gap is and, like, act accordingly. Don't, don't fall into the gap, right? So you want to, there's an element of understanding that's there. Understand what the gap is. But also an, an element of acting, acting accordingly. Okay, so that's, that's the word he's using. Why does that matter? Well, it's not the only word that Paul can use for mind or for thinking about something. Um, Just earlier in chapter 7, we read this passage that Paul says, I can see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Well, the word that we translate mind there is this Greek word nous. Um, And that's a word that means something more strictly like intellect, just like pure understanding, not really having much to do with how you act, just what you know. So I think when Paul says that we need to mind the Spirit, that is to think about the things of the Spirit, I think that he's not just talking about a merely intellectual exercise. He's, he's talking about something that goes deeper, something that involves thinking about the Spirit, but with the ultimate aim of getting us to act a certain way. So here's a helpful analog that maybe can, can ground this more. Um, a lot of successful athletes, bringing it back to sports, use something called positive visualization. Maybe you've heard of this. Um, when athletes visualize or imagine themselves competing in a competition, what, what it turns out to be the case is they actually stimulate the same brain region as they are when they physically perform their action in a sport. And it's been found that using positive visualization, spending time when you're not performing your sport, imagining or visualizing yourself doing well, like doing your, you know, your sports activity and succeeding at it has a correlative, you know, like a positive effect for succeeding at your sport. Uh, Someone who I think of, when I think about this kind of visualization is Alex Honnold. I think actually Robert maybe brought Honnold up in a sermon a few weeks ago. So this is the guy who, uh, he free soloed El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. He's a climber. He climbed El Capitan with no ropes. It's like the most insane thing you could imagine. And before before he did it, before he even thought about doing it, it was a thing that no one would have thought was possible. Before he approached that, and, you know, before his years of training, it's not even something he would have thought was possible. You know, it's a sort of goal that he had on the edges, the periphery of his mind, as as like an idea that would be amazing, but you can't do. And then, at some point, he just started getting an itch to go think about it, right? And to sort of visualize himself maybe thinking about it more, and then at some point he thought, okay, maybe I'm going to start actually considering training for this. And through a process of really visualizing how would I do it if I was going to do it, and then actually training on the wall, doing some activities that would build up his, you know, ability to to execute it became something that was possible for him right and then like once he actually got on the wall the day he did it there was no doubt in his mind that it was a thing that could be done so he set his mind on that task right for years and years he was setting his mind on the thing and it was a it was a thoughtful exercise it it involved a lot of understanding and meditation but it was something that was geared towards action and Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit is probably not exactly like an athlete. It's not just thinking about doing good things and rewiring your brain because you're having good thought patterns. But I do think there's a real similarity there. If you want to walk in the Spirit, Paul says, then you need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And in minding the things of the Spirit, what happens for the Christian is that you come to walk in the Spirit. Okay, so I think three big questions should stand out for us at this point. What are the things of the Spirit? This is a phrase that, I've been, that Paul uses and I've been throwing around, but what really are the things of the Spirit? What are the things we should be thinking about? How do we know what our minds are set on? And how do we really do that? How do we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? So that's where I want to bring us at, at the end of today. Okay, so I think when we think about what the things of the Spirit are, the short answer here is that the things of the Spirit are the truths of the gospel. And I think Paul seems to confirm this in the following verses, in verses 9 through 11. He says, you, however, that is, you who are who have been justified, you who, are, who have faith, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So two things here. Um, one, just adding on to what I was saying a minute ago about how is setting our minds on the things of the spirit different from, you know, setting our minds on the things of a sport or something like that? Well, one is that as Christians, we have the spirit. Right? So, you know, an athlete setting their minds on the things of a sport, it's just them and their sport, right? It's them and their activity. And maybe they're working with a coach or uh, some other athletes, you know, a community of people, but it's, that's not a spiritual process. But as Christians, if you are in Christ, Paul says, you have the Spirit. And in setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, It's not just that, you know, like I said earlier, it's not just that you're having good thoughts and rewiring your brain and then there's a good outcome. The Spirit is partnering with you in your sanctification. It's something you're doing with God to bring about a change in your life. So that's a big difference, right? Now, coming back to this question, what are the things of the Spirit? It seems like Paul is saying here that The things of the Spirit are the truths about the life that God is bringing you in this process and will keep bringing you because Christ is in you, because of what Christ has done, and because of the fact that you've received Christ's grace through faith. So the people who belong to Christ and who have the Spirit in them are those who have received Christ's gift of grace through faith. And Jesus says something similar about the Spirit, actually, I think, in the Gospel of John. So this is in John sixteen thirteen through 14. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, in part, I think what's going on here is this is a special promise to the apostles. Jesus is talking to them about how they're going to relate to the, the Holy Spirit and that he's going to guide them into truth, declare things to them. But it also, I think, reveals what the Spirit does, that he takes things that are Christ's, truth that, truths that are Christ's, truths about the gospel, and declares them to us with the goal of glorifying Jesus. So I think this shows us that the things of the Spirit are those gospel truths that the Spirit reveals to us. Truths about our identity in Christ, about what Christ has done on the cross. Okay, so the the next question I was talking about earlier was how do we know what our minds are set on? So we wanna set our minds on the things of the Spirit and you might wonder, uh, okay, well, what is my mindset on that? Do I already have my mindset on the things of the spirit, or do I have it set on something else? How would I tell? And I think there are a lot of ways that you could check a lot of different tests you could use, but here are are two tests: One is consider your thought life and another is consider your fruit and i 'll talk about both of these uh, different tests in order so Here's an experience that we've all had this year, thinking about, talking about thoughts now. This year, I think probably every single one of you, except for a few of you blessed children, uh, have been stuck, maybe even some of you kids, have been stuck in a boring Zoom meeting. Uh, So here's a question for you. Where does your mind go when you're in the boring Zoom meeting? Like, you know, we're all, like, I'm sure most of you are very, you know, good colleagues or, or whatever, you know, context of Zoom meetings coming up in, and you stay attentive for as long as you can, but eventually when you're in the boring Zoom meeting, your mind goes somewhere else. And that's a test. Boredom actually can show us where, like, what our attachment is. Where does your mind first go when you're in the boring Zoom meeting? Maybe for some of you it's, daydreaming about your favorite sport, you know, what's my team going to do this week, or a book you're reading, maybe it's online shopping, you're planning out uh, some home improvements that you're really spending a lot of time thinking about. Probably for a lot of us, it's some kind of social media that we're like checking in on constantly. So boredom is like one diagnostic tool to find out what we are attached to. Where does your mind go when it's uncomfortable, to that place where you find comfort. But it's not the only diagnostic tool, right? Actually, lots of negative emotions can be diagnostic tools for us. Stress, anxiety, fear. Where does your mind go to cope with things like that? That's a a question you can ask yourself and start paying attention. And I'm not at all saying that these coping me- mechanisms are bad in and of themselves, that it's bad to think about a sports team or bad to improve your home or something like that. And in, I think in some cases, they're like healthy or you know at least necessary ways of coping with hard stuff going on in your life. But here's what I think is the, the point to hold on to, that if you want to fully Participate with the Spirit in your sanctification. If you want to walk according to the Spirit, then you need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And if at no point in those bored, anxious, stressed, fearful moments, does your mind go to the things of the Spirit, then it's going to be hard for you to walk according to the Spirit. Right? So this is a diagnostic tool for us to think about. Where does our mind go in those moments? And if it's not ever going to the things of the Spirit, then we might want to think about, okay, how can I maybe pull some of those things out of my life? And maybe I could pray instead. Or maybe when I'm fearful, I could turn to Scripture instead of wherever it is I'm going. So the other tool I was talking about was fruit. Romans is definitely not the only place that Paul writes about walking in the Spirit. Uh, In Galatians 5, he tells us what fruit someone bears when they're walking according to the Spirit. He says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul is saying here that if you walk according to the Spirit, if that's what you're doing, this is going to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you'll walk according to the Spirit, and this will show by the fruit in your life. So if you want to know whether your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, look at the fruit. Are you patient, loving, kind? What kind of, what kind of fruit do you see in your life? And you know, if you really want to know, Ask the friends and family members who are closest to you. That's a, that's a scary uh, diagnostic thing you could do, but if you really want to know, like that's a thing. That's a thing you can do, right? Okay, enough about that. So we, we've talked then about what are the things of the spirit? How do we know what our minds are set on? So. Say you find, okay, I don't know if that my mind really is set on the things of the Spirit. How do you do it? How do you really set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Because that can sound pretty abstract, right? Just telling someone, set your mind on it. Okay, well, I talked a little bit about positive visualization. We kind of know what the athlete is doing. They're like imagining themselves doing something. It's not clear that that's what we're supposed to be doing in... In this case, though, like, what would you be imagining yourself doing? Well, I think, fortunately, Christians have developed a number of different practices over the centuries that are aimed at helping us do just this, that are aimed at helping us set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, I've got a few I'm going to tell you about right now. I think, as an aside, we've, I, I just want to point out, this is what we've been doing this morning. Like... We gathered together, and when we were singing these songs that that J.D. and V. were leading us in, we were setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, right? These gospel truths. And then Grace came up and read Scripture for us, and, and we were praying together. We've already been setting our minds on the things of the Spirit this morning as a, as a group. So the, the the things that Christians throughout a lot of time, have been developing to help us set our minds on the things of the Spirit. I'm going to call spiritual disciplines. They're spiritual because they help you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and they're disciplines because they take some work. It takes some effort and routine in a lot of cases. I'm going to talk about just four of them. I think if you're interested in learning about a lot more, one good resource you can look at is a book by a guy named Richard Foster. It's called Celebration of Discipline. He talks about 12 of them in that book. Um, And it's a good introduction to thinking about what they look like, how you can practically incorporate them into your life. But here are a few. So prayer is one. Uh, Great, I've got them listed up here. Thanks, Thanks to Megan for getting my slides together. Um, yeah, so prayer, Bible study, service, and confession are the few I want to talk about this morning. So prayer and Bible study, I think, are the two spiritual disciplines that our church tradition is like, we major in these, where we know about them, we probably don't even think about them as spiritual disciplines, we just think it, like these are the things that Christians are supposed to do, right? And I think it makes sense that we're, we major in them, given a lot of our other commitments, they're, they're really good things to do, and they're essential to our ability to deeply understand the things of the Spirit and to open our hearts to God. To I mean, Robert's going to talk next week about prayer especially and the, the way that the Spirit helps us in prayer. But they're, they're also what Foster, in his book, calls inward disciplines. They're practiced typically or often solely by the individual believer by themselves. And that's not only the way that spiritual disciplines have to be practiced. So, service, another one that I put on there, is a spiritual discipline that can be practiced, um, the way he puts it, is outwardly. So, when you serve other people, either by evangelizing or by meeting practical needs in the community is a really, you know, obvious way to serve other people, by cheerfully giving of money, or by, you know, meeting uh, people who, people's needs who have food insecurity, um, helping people who need their, their uh, housing situation moved, or who need furniture, things like that. That's a way, actually, of rehearsing the gospel, right? Like, we all were met by Christ in the deepest, most dire spiritual need, and Christ. Served us in becoming human and dying on the cross and resurrecting. Like that was the deepest and most fundamental service that any of us possibly could have received. And in serving people, we are, if we ha- at least have the right mindset, rehearsing the gospel that is the things of the Spirit in a way that's directed towards other people. So that actually is a spiritual discipline, if you're practicing it in the right way, that can help you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Confession is another one I wanted to talk about today. This is a a spiritual discipline that we can practice as a church body. So obviously this is one that takes humility and it takes love. It takes really the the, the fruit of the Spirit, and it requires confessing our sins to one another. And this could be cases where we have wronged one another or offended one another. Or it could be a case where you just have some sin that you've been keeping to yourself and you've been harming yourself but not, you know, somebody else in the church and you need to tell somebody about it. I think in either such case, it's a spiritual discipline that also allows us to rehearse the gospel in the context of the family of God in in having come to Christ, received his grace through faith, we repented of our sin, right? That's something that any of you who is a Christian, that's something that you did. You repented of your sin, and you came, to, you came before the throne and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to turn away from that sin, and I want to turn towards you. And we're still in this battle. I mean, that's what we, we talked about in chapter 7 of Romans, that like, that sin is still our opponent. While in confessing our sin to each other, we can rehearse that same repentance that we practiced, you know, in coming into that kingdom. So, okay, practically, what, how can we be setting our minds in the Spirit then to, to sort of encapsulate all that? I think for Christians, practice some disciplines. Like, think about what are some spiritual disciplines that you could be practicing in your life? Maybe some that you haven't practiced or maybe some that you uh, sort of kind of have been practicing but you really want to dedicate yourself to and use them as a means to set your mind on the things of the spirit and if you're not a Christian think about what your mind is set on I think if there's one takeaway for you from this passage it's that your mind is set on something And Paul seems to be saying it's either the things of the spirit or it's the things of the flesh. And for him, he says, the things of the flesh are death. So you might think about what that means and and what you really want your mind to be set on. And I'd love to talk to you about that or uh, I think any number of people here would also love to talk to you about it. So Paul finishes out... um, by pointing out something that I was just talking about in the context of confession a minute ago, that we are a family. That everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is what he calls a son of God. I think it's worth, uh, before finishing up, pointing a couple of things out about that term, son of God. So one thing is what Paul himself points out, that it means we are on intimate terms with God. This is something Irenaeus also emphasized in that passage I read earlier, that we ourselves talk to, to the Father, and we call him Father, right? Paul says we can call out to God, Abba, Father. That Abba is an intimate term, right? It's, it's not, we're not at a distance with God. Because we have the Spirit and because we are sons of God, we, we have an intimacy with God the creator of the universe. And I, I, one thing I hope is that that really transforms our experience of things like spiritual disciplines. That it's not just a task to check off so that you can, like, level up as a Christian or, uh, you know, do the right thing or something like that, but that in entering into times of prayer or service or confession, you experience intimacy with God that really changes the way that feels. I think another thing to point out here, though, is that hopefully points us towards Robert's sermon next week is um, going all the way back to Genesis. The Old Testament refers to angels in God's heavenly host as sons of God. This is actually like a technical term, sons of God, for 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 the angels and the the sort of role that they fill in God's kingdom. And I think Paul here is identifying, he's using that language that describes the servants of God, the angels of God, as as his sons to mark out the positions that we have to look forward to in God's kingdom. And I think that also explains why he, he uses that and then he switches to saying, that we're children of God, that more generic term a moment later. I'm not going to try and say a lot about this future glory that Paul is talking about. I'm going to to make Robert do all that next week and make him do the hard work there. Um, But I just want to come back to that one point I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, that hope comes through suffering. Paul says that here at the end that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our hope, and hope is a future-directed attitude, right? It's about, it's about something that's going to happen. Our hope in setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, the hope that we have as we're doing that, is in thinking back on what Jesus did on the cross. That's where it comes from, in thinking about Jesus' suffering. And the hope is that we'll become more like Jesus, the one who suffered for us. So we have a hope of a future glory, but the future glory that was purchased for us was purchased through suffering. And it comes for us through our own suffering now. So I hope today that we can set our minds on Christ. I hope that we understand how to do that and that we can help each other do that. And that comes with the knowledge that in doing so, we're going to become more like Jesus, and that the benefit is not only in this life, but in the life to come as well, in the life of the resurrection as well. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are impressed this morning that you are a God who would suffer for us, that you are a God who would lower himself and bring us out of darkness into wonderful light, Lord. We want to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and set our minds on what you have done for us. And we look forward with hope to the transformation that you are bringing about in our lives now and that you are going to continue to bring about in our lives, Lord. I pray for each person here this morning, God, that you would bring about that transformation in them, that you would help them to seek out that transformation not only for themselves, but for those around them, that they would build each other up as family. And I ask with expectant hope, for the help of your spirit in that, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.